I would be uh, remiss if I did not say a special word of gratitude and thanks to the guys who are making all of this technology actually happen behind the camera. It's Mark Schwartzkopf and Nathan Parker, and I'm so thankful for these guys. We started a couple minutes late, and if it hadn't been for Mark Schwartzkopf, we would not have restarted until Tuesday. So what he's been able to do, what Nathan has been able to do is incredible. Back on percussion, we have Brandon Howell, and on keys, we have Andrew Lindstrom, these guys that are giving of their Sunday morning time to be here to provide an aesthetic and a, and a sound and a feel that feels like us, that feels like church. So I'm thankful for you guys for doing that. Uh, for Mike back here, who is helping to just quarterback all of the craziness, Mike, who has just been uh, that operational mind of the system's genius that's kind of kept all the rest of us uh, out of jail, candidly. So we're thankful for Mike. And then I, I can't express adequately my affection for Matt and Megan, um, their partnership in the gospel, just to hear. You got me like choked up in two songs. I won't tell you which one you didn't, but two of the songs <laughs> totally got me. So, so thank you guys for doing church with us together. And I'll tell you, uh, this is hard. I miss, uh, I miss Janice. I miss Dusty. Where are you, Dusty? I need some amens from Dusty. I don't know if I'm getting this right or not. But that's okay, um, because we're still a church family uh, distributed all around this community. And it got me thinking this week, well, what am I supposed to say to a group of people that I really haven't seen in forever? So it seems anyway. What am I supposed to say to a group of people that are going through all sorts of things, many of those things now I don't even know? And I don't know about you, but I have spent probably more time than I should this past week reading uh, a lot of different comments from people on this side of the aisle politically and on that side of the aisle politically. And I've been horrified at some of our colleagues in the evangelical Christian world who have said some things that I'm candidly ashamed of. And I've also been horrified of some things that have been said by people who would perhaps come from a different tradition. And so I've thought, what am I supposed to say? What can I do? What can we do to encourage and to nourish our people? I wish I was the kind of guy that in this kind of season in our nation and in our world, I wish I was the kind of guy who could give some sort of wisdom that would be remedial, that would be reparative, that would be restorative, that would be encouraging. But I know me, and I'll end up saying something that I and my entire extended family will regret profoundly. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? The only thing I can do is the best thing that I can do. We're in a sermon series in the book of Romans. And it so happens under God's providential grace that we are in chapter 15 this morning where Paul is going to again articulate the gospel. The, the situation and the circumstance in which we find ourselves today, having to experience social distance, being a little bit leery of our culture, context, and society, is actually very similar to what's happening in Rome 2,000 years ago where to publicly identify as a Christian when your baptism was in public, you were saying, I'm now open season for the persecution of the people around me. And so what do we say? Paul continues to give them the gospel. Our working definition, if you remember anything about the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church in Tyler, the gospel is the good news. It's the great story. It's the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. In other words, the 
only thing that we actually have to get done in this life has already been done for us, accomplished by somebody else. So in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of strife and anxiety and perhaps even relational duress in the home, we know that the thing that matters most has been done. And so on that confidence, as Matt and Megan sung, we can ask God, is this gonna be okay? Do you have plans for me? Do you love me? Can I trust you? And the answer is resoundingly, yes. So because the gospel is so central to who we are as a people, not just at Bethel, not just in East Texas, but as the church universal, since the gospel is so central, I'm convinced that it actually is the answer for an anxious time. Which leads me to our big idea for this passage for this morning, and it goes like this. Give the gospel in every gathering. Give the gospel in every gathering. And I'll explain a little bit more about what that means, how that takes shape. But I'm convinced what this world needs most is a great group of grace-filled people who are giving the gospel in every gathering. Now, we're going to hear the passage read in just a moment from Megan McGill as she's turning to Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21. I want to remind you that I'm only tackling one particular text in this chapter. Next week, Lord willing, will be Palm Sunday, and we will conclude our sermon series on the book of Romans. But I want to remind you that the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And since that has happened, since that has occurred, it unleashes us to give the gospel in every gathering. So I'll ask Megan if she would read our passage for this morning and we'll continue to walk through God's word. Romans 15, 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of God. Thank you, Megan. I want to just walk back through this passage very briefly and try to unpack a little bit of what this text holds for us today. Just to orient us in the context of what's going on, Paul has given us 11 chapters on doctrine, 11 chapters on the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 12, he rapidly pivots and begins to give us a whole lot of exhortations, a whole lot of um, 
imperatives of this is how in view of God's mercy, we are now to live. And really that whole section from 12.1 goes all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. And it's all very practical. It's all Paul uh, exhorting one another to love one another, which he has to do because he knows that the church, as Matt said, is full of sin-soaked, sin-stained people who are indwelled by God's spirit, but who still have to learn how to love one another. Well, we finally come this morning to chapter 15, verse 14, and it actually begins the final section of the entire book of Romans. And Paul's going to do something really interesting. He's going to bookend what he started in chapter 1 with what he says here in chapter 15. Now, I know that when we started our sermon series on the book of Romans way back in August, none of us could have imagined that by this time in chapter 15, we would be running around East Texas trying desperately to find a roll of toilet paper. It was on nobody's radar, and yet, this is the world we live in. And so, it's a good reminder that things are not as stable as we would like to pretend that they are. So, we find ourselves in chapter 15, verse 14, where Paul is now going to make his final bookend, if you will, on what the gospel is and its centrality and what God is accomplishing in it. So, in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, or I am convinced. This is really interesting. Paul's never actually been to Rome, nor to the churches in Rome. But he says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers. He's putting himself on equal footing with them. He's not pulling rank as an apostle, which is interesting because he certainly can. Paul's showing good leadership. He actually has authority over them, and yet he's going to need something from them. And so he's not bribing them. He's not sucking up to them, but he's practicing good relationality so that he can actually partner with them for the advance and the spread of the gospel later on in his ministry. At least that's his intent. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. And then three things, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now, that doesn't sound like it's that big of a compliment. Oh, you're a good person. Well, in antiquity, in Bible times, being called good was actually better than being called righteous. You might remember that Paul says someone might die for a righteous person, but for a good person, they would probably die. Good meant you were full of uprightness, that you were actually noble, that you had dignity, that people wanted to be around you. And Paul says, I am satisfied, I am convinced that you yourselves are, number one, full of goodness. Number two, that you are filled with all knowledge. This doesn't mean they know everything, that they can do French trigonometry. It means that they are fully baked in the understanding of the Christian confession. They understand solid, sound doctrine and theology. And that they are actually able to instruct one another. It's a weird translation when we say instruct. It's really warn and admonish, correct, maybe even so strong as rebuke. You're so mature, you're so developed that you are actually able to be the church, even though Paul says, I didn't start the church. So Paul says almost slightly delicately, whoever started the churches in Rome, some legend and tradition says it was Peter. We don't know that. But Paul's wanting to affirm that God has gotten it done outside of Paul's initial uh, investment into that church. How did Paul know this about these churches in Rome? He had never been there. How did he know that they were full of goodness, full of all knowledge and able to admonish one another? Well, a lot like Bethel, they talked about themselves 
And other people talked about themselves. People said, I love my church. This is why I love my church. I love the people of my church and word about them spread. And we know in chapter 16, verses three and four, that Priscilla and Aquila had been at the church in Rome. They're now in Corinth with Paul, giving him a full report. And so he's loving hearing this report about this church. As pastors and leaders and elders, there's no joy like hearing that our people are basking in the blessing of our church. And when we hear it from other people outside the church saying, man, I'm hearing such great things about Bethel, about what you guys are doing, how you love one another, how you love God's word, how you love people outside of the church in the community, that gives us such joy. And so Paul is not setting them up for something. He's just saying, hey, this is your reputation and I wanna build into that even more so. So he says in verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly. <laughs> That being 11 chapters of, let me explain to you what the gospel is more fully. You know some things and you guys are doing great, but let me explain. Yes, you're full of goodness. Yes, you're full of knowledge. Yes, you can even admonish one another. And in the context of the Roman Empire, that's incredible. Paul says, but I have written very boldly for a very specific person by way of reminder. He's not saying I've given you brand new information, but of course he was. There's no way that they knew all of the things that Paul had dropped on them of 11 chapters worth of doctrine and theology, but by way of reminder, that's very important. Because of the grace given me by God, he's referring to his apostolic call, his instruction directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who directly gave him these marching orders of, I want you to teach these things primarily and predominantly to the Gentile people. Then verse 16 is really sort of the central verse of this whole passage from this morning. It's the center of this whole thrust that Paul's trying to make. He says, the grace given to me by God, his apostleship, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says a mouthful here. Ordinarily, Paul will call himself an apostle. He might even call himself a minister, the diakonos word. Sometimes he calls himself a doulos, a bond servant or a slave. But here he uses a very rare, rare word. He calls himself a priest. We translate it minister because it's kind of strange. Paul calls himself a priest. It's an Old Testament word. It's liturgos in the Greek. The point of an Old Testament priest was to stand and represent the people before God to point them to the sacrifice. So Paul's using very intentional language here that I am a priest in the priestly service to the Gentiles in the service of the gospel of God. We might remember in chapter one, Paul starts off saying, I am a minister of the gospel of God. It's not Paul's gospel. It is God's gospel. It is his good news to the people for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Paul says, I am a servant of that gospel. So I'm reminding you that this was what I have been given a charge to be a priest so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This verse is astonishing. Paul's saying that my offering to God as a priest is not the blood of bulls and goats. It is the Gentile nations. I present them to God, not as though they are to be slaughtered. That's not it. But Paul says, because of the grace given to me, my priestly role is to offer up all the Gentile nations. That's what Jesus sent me to do. These peoples are an offering to God and I wanna do this well. That's really instructive. 
other words, Paul says, how I give the gospel is actually an expression of how I view the worth of God. Now that's convicting. Do I give the gospel consistently? Do I give the gospel clearly? Because that's actually an expression of my worth of God. Paul says, you Gentiles are my demonstration, my proclamation of how much I love my God. So it makes me wonder, do I show God how much I love him by making others an offering to him? God, would you receive this offering? God, would you receive this people group, this family, this household, this small group, this church, this campus, this community? Would you receive this, God? Would you do a work by your Holy Spirit? And then Paul's very quick to explain what he means in verse 17 and following. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. This is none of my winsome cleverness. He'll say in Corinthians, I'm not any great orator, but in Christ Jesus, he sent me, he dispatched me, he's going to get this done. And so I'm very proud of that work. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. In other words, I'm not taking credit for you churches in Rome. I'm not taking credit for anything else other than what God has told me to do in Christ by his spirit. That's the agency and the power of how all of this gets done. And then Paul says something really remarkable that it's easy for us to gloss over. Verse 18, he says, by word and deed, by the power and of signs and wonders. Now, most often people get hung up on this and they think, okay, so this is about miracles and signs and wonders. Absolutely not. This has nothing to do with actual signs and wonders. This is a direct reference to the book of Exodus, where every time God is mentioned taking the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says that it happens by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders. Paul equates his ministry to the Gentiles with Moses' ministry to the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt. What I'm doing for the Gentile nations, and you Romans are included in that, is on par with what Moses did with Israel, bringing them out of Egypt by word and deed, by signs and wonders. Yes, the book of Acts is full of the signs and wonders that Paul did, but they were only ever and always to confirm his authority, just like an Old Testament prophet, just like Moses. So people ask, can God still do miracles today? No, because everything that God does is a miracle. He's a sovereign, omnipotent God. Nothing is hard for God. Does God still do wonders that are above and beyond our explanation and expectation? Yes, of course he does, but not to confirm my authority or anybody else's. Everything that God does is miraculous and wondrous. So I hear people with needle points in their hallways that say, expect a miracle. Well, if you do and it happens, then you shouldn't have expected it because that means it wasn't probably miraculous. Okay, I'm ranting. The point being, Paul is saying this has to do with the level of the Gentiles being brought into the promises of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's happening. And I get to be the tip of the spear that brings the nations into the promise that God had for Abraham, where he promised to be a blessing to all nations. Paul says it's happening. And I get to be the tip of that spear. So again, in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God, this is how it gets done. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, this is incredible. We don't know when Paul went there, but he says, I started my ministry in Jerusalem. We see that in the book of Acts. And apparently at some point, Paul made it all the way roundabout, literally, to what's called Illyricum in those days. That is modern day Croatia today. Beautiful. On the west coast of the Adriatic, across the water from Italy, 
astonishingly beautiful. And Paul goes there preaching the gospel, not saying that it's been fully done, but saying, I have fulfilled the command and the directive of the risen Lord Jesus. I have done it. And Jesus wants me to do more. All the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I love the fact that Paul says it is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of Christ. In other words, God loves us so much that he sent his second self in his son to be that for us, which we could never accomplish or achieve on our own. Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Let me get preachy for just a moment. I hear people all the time say, ah, you see there, we should only give the gospel where it's never been given before. Stop it. Unless you are the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles that has nothing to do with you. Should we take the gospel to unreached people groups? Absolutely. But we should also give the gospel in every gathering. Paul's saying my charge from the risen Lord Jesus is to go where the gospel has not been preached before, where Christ has not been named before. This is not our missiology. Should it be involved in evangelism and missions? Absolutely. Should we be involved in discipleship here and there and everywhere? Absolutely. But this is specifically Paul explaining why I have not yet made it to Rome. Because remember, they were upset with him because I've been busy. I was in Yugoslavia and now I'm doing this in Corinth and I'm trying to actually get, we'll find out in the rest of chapter 15, I'm trying to get as far west as Spain because as far as Paul knew, that was the end of the earth, fulfilling the charge of Acts 1-8 here, there, and everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Well, as is Paul's custom in verse 21, he rounds this out. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I love that Paul bookends this section by referring to both Moses in the Exodus, and now he refers to Isaiah chapter 52, which is the fourth suffering servant section of the book of Isaiah. Paul's saying, this is Jesus, the hope of Messiah. It's happening. This is that. And I get to be the minister, the priest that offers up all these Gentile nations to God as an expression of worship. We see the law in Moses. We see the prophets in Isaiah. Paul says, it's this, it's happening. God has gotten it done. The gospel goes forth. So he wants to remind the churches of Rome to give the gospel in every gathering. So just very quickly, three implications or application principles from this passage. Number one goes like this. And these are super practical, super easy, super obvious. Number one, Christians need to be reminded. Yes. Christians need to be reminded. I hear church people all the time say, I've heard the stories. I don't need to hear any more about Daniel and the ark or Jonah and the lion's den. And I go, actually that's anyway, never mind. <laughs> Christians need to be reminded because our awe leaks and our eyes fall. And all of us have the tendency to revert back to our own perceived position of strength. And so what do we do during this stay at home order? What do we do during this quarantine besides grow an awesome beard? I see you out there. I see you in your no shavedness. What else are we supposed to do? We are reminded of the glory and the greatness of the gospel because we forget and we forget to weave it into our conversations. Let me, let me brag on a guy for a second. If you've had any conversation within the last eight years with Matthew P. McGill, you've heard the gospel brought forth. Even if he was talking about the worst Mexican food of his life, he's going to weave in, yes, but we're free in Christ. Yes, but God's done a thing. Brother, I am free. And he's going to give you the gospel 
in every single gathering. I'm not saying that he's sinless or without stain. He's incredibly jacked up. But this brother loves to give the gospel in every gathering because he understands intuitively, because he's an artist and a songwriter, that there's something to be said for a great chorus and a hook. Christians need to be reminded. And that hook is the gospel. In all these seasons and times of uncertainty and angst, and the gospel is good news and it is finished. Which brings me to the second point, also incredibly practical, and it goes like this. Repetition is the mother of learning. Yes. And apparently volume is the daddy. I don't know about that, but repetition is the mother of learning. We need to be reminded and repetition is the mother of learning. We have to hear this again and again. Paul starts off the book of Romans by talking about the gospel of God. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another because the righteousness of God has been revealed because the wrath of God has been revealed. And he's gonna say it over and over and over again throughout this 16 chapter book because repetition is the mother of learning. Disciplines that deepen our theological thinking are good for us and they equip us and they give us esteem to boldly give the gospel in every gathering. See, our thinking and our feeling does matter to God. And so we wanna be consistently echoing, we might say, repeating, reverberating the gospel, almost like mockingbirds, you might say, <laughs> September 18th and 19th. Third point from this passage goes like this. The Holy Spirit is the power of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. You may be sitting there in your pajamas or soccer shorts and in your beige colored tank top, that's weird. And you may be thinking, I don't know how to give the gospel. I don't know how to say this thing. Listen, thanks be to God. It's not about your winsome cleverness and your relevant communication. We don't have to make the gospel relevant. There is nothing more relevant. We simply want to make it clear. We simply want to say, this is who God is. This is the problem with mankind. This is how much he loves us. This is what he has done. And as that weaves its way into every conversation with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, on Facebrag, on Instagram, all those things, we give the gospel in every gathering. And we trust that the Holy Spirit loves to amplify, loves to make a big deal of the gospel. He's always demurring and deferring to the finished work of Jesus. He's going to get that done. Whether you feel like you've done a great job or not, whether you hear Dusty or Janice out there amening you or not, we trust that the Holy Spirit of God is going to get this done. So that's Romans 15, verses 14 to 21. Give the gospel in every gathering. The Spirit gets it done. So do you guys have any thoughts, comments, clarifications, violent reactions, conversions on all of this? Or do we have any questions coming in from online, Mike? We've got lots of questions online, a lot of comments online. Um, let me just start with this one because this is this was asked three or four different ways and it's you kind of addressed it in the application on what does it mean to give the gospel? So is that the Roman road? Do I have to practice it? What if I do it right? Do I need to include you know the spiritual laws, the evangelist explosion? So very tangibly um, and, and you said uh, the clarity of your gospel, I'm misquoting you here, uh, so we'll put it on the screen. Clearly, the gospel reflects what you think of God or something along those effects is, is what you said. Uh, so, so what does that mean? How, how good do you have to get at giving the gospel? Uh, and, and is there a, the, I'm paraphrasing some of these questions, is there a formula there in, in giving the gospel? I would love to answer that, and then I would love for you guys to answer that. And that includes Brandon and Andrew as well. Here's what I would say about how do I give the gospel? 
No one has ever asked me how to talk about their wife. Right. No one's ever asked me how to talk about their kids. Do you love your kid? Do you understand the relationship with them? If so, it bubbles out. Now, I understand that that's a physical present relationship and that God is not physiologically bodily present. So I understand that there's a difference there, but it requires you understanding for yourself. What does this mean? God is holy. He is righteous. I am not. He loves me. He sent Jesus. He's removed my sin. I am learning to live in light of that love and forgiveness. I am free, free indeed. And that understanding, that gravity of the gospel, that naturally or supernaturally weaves itself through every conversation. Again, that I have with my wife, my friends, lost people, people in the community, uh, my children, whatever. So it's not that I have to be taught on how to give four spiritual laws. That's a great framework. And perhaps you should use that if it's helpful. But more than that, I think this generation in this day and age is desperate for authenticity. We don't want to send people knocking on doors, asking people if they died tonight, would they end up in heaven or hell? If those people who are knocking on doors themselves don't actually know for sure. Exactly. That's a horrible horrible offense to the kingdom. So I think, and first of all, it's to know the gospel, to love the gospel, to be enamored by the gospel, and then allow that to ooze out in every conversation. What do you, how would you guys answer that? Man, right on. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that we have to be a witness before we can speak about the, the gospel, right? I mean, that's the way I look at it and interpret how to present the gospel on a regular basis to those that I'm in contact. Yep. Um, we, have to live our lives in a way that honors Christ and that represents what the gospel truly is, be it in our family or in our workplace. And once they've seen that, the gospel, tell, the, the word tells us to be prepared in season and out. We need to know those things and those facts, the Romans road, be it as it may, yep. uh, so that when the opportunity is presented, you're able to then walk in the good work with the Holy Spirit is prepared for you before the beginning of time. Great. So you'll just naturally flow into it. It's not a a shotgun blast, but a sniper shot. But great word. I look at Brandon, it. one great thing word. on that, I, and I agree, but I, but I think to, to be clear, where I think sometimes people take something out of context, when you say to to get your, you know, be a good witness yourself and yes. to follow Christ yourself, yeah. to be clear on that, it does not mean to be sinless. It means no. to confess often. Absolutely. Right? Is to go, yeah. hey, to a good Christian does not mean you do uh, that, that you are a less sinless person. Right. You, you learn you're the chief of sinners. Yeah, right. right. You you go, oh. yeah. Well, and I think also it's, it's helpful to recognize that what's going on with you is probably going on with everybody else. Mm -hmm. Luther said that condemnation follows a man his whole life. Yep. And, that, and that means every day I wake up, I have to contend with condemnation, which is why I need brothers and sisters around me to apply the gospel to my particular point of condemnation my particular point of anxiety or fear or nervousness that that keeps me from living out a witness in other words my living out a witness is kind of contingent on the brothers and sisters around me right. telling me the truth of the gospel and emboldening me to walk into that goodness that That's god right. has already created in advance well and as far as how do we give the gospel um i think we practice we introspectively think what does this actually really and truly mean to me, we're affirmed by community. And we start to think, how does this actually affect the way I think of my wife? Because again, when we do sin, it's not just because we're bad people. Well, that's true. But it's because a functional, practical failure to believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. 
And so when we think about that, we meditate on that, we pray on that, God begins to crystallize that in us so that, as Brandon said, we are actually able to live lives that are witnessable and we also articulate both. It's been well documented that uh, a quote that was wrongly attributed to St. Francis, Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, always use words if necessary. Francis of Assisi probably never actually said that. I know what people mean. They mean just be better than you actually are. But I think it was Josh Wilson recently said, saying that is sort of like saying, give me your phone number, use numbers if necessary. <laughs> like there does have to be some content to what we're saying about the gospel. It's good news. Yeah. God is holy. You're not. He loves you. He sent his son to take away your sin. You have right standing before him. That's tremendous. Again, the only thing we really have to get done has already been done for us. Now, in view of that mercy, man, I am able to live a life of self-sacrifice in front of my wife. And one day, honey, I will. I'm able to actually submit to the will of somebody else whom I love because of the gospel. That's a long answer to one question. We have a couple more? No, we've got like like nine or ten more. <laughs> um, okay. So, so I, I'm, I'm... It's picking, three o'clock, I'm guys. picking and choosing here. Uh, here, here, let's look at this one. Oh, Martin said repetition is key, but what if the person that you're talking to doesn't want to hear and your reputation, doesn't want to hear your reputation and finds it repulsive or your, yeah, your repetition, <laughs> repetition, repetition, right, like I got it, I got it, hey, you're, I don't want to hear this anymore. Megan? No, no, no. I was going to ask you because I think that's a great question. She was question. correcting my, my, uh, <laughs> my language. That's what she was doing. I was okay. Doing We're all family here. Repetition and not repetition. There's yeah. grace for that yeah. here too. Um, clearly, as has been said for thousands of years, prayer is the greatest mm, tool, uh, asset when it comes to evangelism and giving of the gospel because it's the spirit that's going to do the work. Clearly, we don't want to just prattle on with some mindless, mm -hmm. uh, hollow, inauthentic, uh, the Roman road is great unless we don't actually understand it ourselves and we're just saying some words out loud. So we pray and we pray and we pray and we trust that God's going to soften a heart and that he's going to do for them what he has done for us. So repetition does not mean broken record necessarily. Repetition is a consistency. And really, yeah. when I use the word repetition, I mean for us, yeah. that we are reminded with repetition, with frequency and consistency, so that when we are squeezed, as it were, that is what comes out of us. As Brandon said earlier, we're all, in a sense, jelly donuts. When you get squeezed, and you do, and you will, and some of us are right now through the season that we're in, what's truly inside comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They should put that in the Bible somewhere. So... <laughs> I'm not saying we should just try to wear people down with mindless prattling on, but man, to never ever um, be caught on your heels, although we all will be, but be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. But Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 16, do this with gentleness and respect, which means we do contextualize. Well, and it says at the end there uh, and finds it repulsive. I think um, that's just a hard reality for for those of us, Eric, that really like to be liked, like the two of us <laughs> that just really want to be liked. Right, right, because, right. Because just our very being, just who we are, is kind of repulsive to some people. Yeah. I'd like to say also. Because of yeah. what we believe. That's right. That's right. The gospel offends. We have yeah. to keep that in mind. It is an offensive message. 
So there, that people will naturally be offended by the gospel. Being told that you're a sinner hurts. Good word. One thing also to remember is uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, speaking from beyond the grave, uh, <laughs> who said, don't preach the gospel to save your soul. Absolutely. That's very important because there's sometimes a religious fervor or a sense of trying to make sure that God knows he was right to choose us, <laughs> overwhelms us. And we begin to preach the gospel in this uneasy, like, if I don't save you, mm-hmm. you're going to go somewhere that you shouldn't go. And I love you. And, oh, and there's all this angst involved instead of joy and freedom and ease that Perfect. comes from an, a blessed assurance that it's actually the spirit doing the work. Perfect. Yeah. Let's, let's do one more, Mike. And I would say after one more, we can also continue this dialogue online. Right. We can do this also Wednesday night. We want to talk about that. We're going to continue to come back together on Wednesday night. We're going to uh, reevaluate our format for what we're doing on Wednesday night live, try to make some of that a little bit more pertinent, perhaps, to what we're doing on the weekends. But we want to continue to provide forums in which we, as the flock, can have interaction. So let's let's say so let me more. let me hit two logistical questions quick, and then we'll we'll end end on a, another good one here. Okay. Logistically. Uh, someone was asking, hey, you guys started here at verse 14. What about the first 13 chapters? And throughout the week, some of the other... Uh, first 13 verses. First 13 verses. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> throughout the week, some of the other uh, campus pastors are actually going to address those, and those will drop on our Facebook feed. So you've got that. Uh, the other logistic question, someone wanted to make a suggestion to do more music for the people who are slow to get up and get on. Okay. Um, Really? <laughs> just show up on time. And that was anonymous, so I don't even know who said that. Come uh, on, Pinkston. But just, just, we're going to start at 10 o'clock. I'm so sorry that, that it's hard because I know it's way late in the evening. Uh, no, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, and I'm sure that was offensive to you, and I'm not sorry. So sorry for being not sorry. I'll move on. Uh, okay. Um, here's, the, here's the good question uh, about verse 20. What is Paul's concern in verse 20 about building on someone else's foundation? Great question. Um, in verse 20, Paul says, I'm not trying to build on someone else's foundation. Again, this is his unique call as the, not an, the apostle to the Gentiles. His charge from the risen Lord Jesus is to go and break ground where Christ has not been named before. This is not saying this is what everyone else should do. It's, hey, listen, someone else got to Rome first. That's awesome. I affirm and I um, have great affection for the churches there in Rome, but that's why I haven't gotten there yet. I'm actually trying to get someplace else. We have to remember, this is Saul of Tarsus, knocked off his horse in Acts 9, running hard in the wrong direction to kill Christians. And then Jesus says, I will show this man how much he must suffer. And he gives Paul a unique purvey, different from the original 12 apostles. He gives Paul a unique purvey as the apostle to the Gentiles, to go and be a part of the original initial, the initial harvest of the Gentile nations to bring them in. So it's not that uh, we have to follow that exact same example. It's just a demonstration of the faithfulness of God as was foretold way back in Genesis 12 through Isaiah 52, all the way into the New Testament. That make sense? Great. Hey, here's what I want to do. I want us to, um, I want us to pray together. And then I want to, uh, Benedict, I want to make you know, uh, make you aware of a couple quick announcements. Uh, number one, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and it's the first Sunday of the month. Typically, traditionally, we do communion on the first Sunday of the month. 
but we really do believe, I personally pastorally believe that communion is a thing that we are supposed to do together in close proximity. And so we've made the decision, I've made the decision for this campus and we've pretty much made the decision for all of Bethel that we're not gonna do communion next week because as far as we can tell, we will not be gathered together in this room next week. So we don't wanna have this strange situation where you're sitting in your home with a saltine cracker and some mango squeezins and call that communion. No, we want to eagerly anticipate being together to have Lord's Supper, to have communion, to have the Eucharist. And my sense is that whenever we are able to come back together and we do have communion, it may be the sweetest communion we will have ever had where those who have received grace will receive grace from one another in view of one another. And I can't wait. So I want you to be aware of that. We don't know how much longer this is going to go, but I do want to continue uh, to let you know that we love you. You are being prayed for by name. We miss you. We miss you a ton. And it's great to, to see you on Zoom calls, to see your texts, to see uh, your emails, even your phone calls. So please uh, don't stay completely isolated during this season of stay at home. Be a part of the community. It's all right, I wanna give one quick word of benediction. And then we're going to have another song. Um, this comes to us from several places sort of put together throughout the New Testament. Now, may the God of all comfort bring you peace and joy. May you be anxious for nothing. May you feel the presence of his spirit in your life. God bless you. We love you. We miss you. Can't wait to see you soon. We're dismissed. We're going to have a little bit more music. God bless.